Welcome to NFP's Insights from the Experts podcast. Each episode showcases timely expertise and perspective from members of the NFP community, delivering information, analysis, and solutions that address our clients' most significant challenges. Hi, thank you for joining us for this next installment of the Washington Update Election Podcast. I'm Kristen Bubat with NFP and Partners Financial. I'm excited to be joined by Army Robinson of Benzeca again. We have many more political things to talk about, so I'm so grateful that Army has taken some time out to share his expertise with us. Army and I are also joined by a special guest today. We have Jeff Driscoll, who is VP of Product Intelligence and Carrier Management for NFP and Partners. And Jeff is here to talk to us about a little tiny change to the tax code that seems to be having some pretty big repercussions. So, Jeff, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Kristen. Hello, Army. Good good day. Good afternoon. I'm not sure when folks will be listening to this, but it's great to be back. I love the <laughs> NFP Partners crew and uh, very glad to join you today. Thank you. So, Jeff, in the Consolidated Appropriations Act, say that three times really fast, that passed Congress and was signed into law at the end of December in 2020, was a little provision that made a change to the way we define life insurance. So could you first give us a real high-level overview of what Section 7702 does, why it's there, and then lead us right into what the change is and why it happened? Right. Yeah. Um... It was a little change, but to a big part of the tax code, at least as far as life insurance is concerned. Um, Section 7702 of the uh, IRS tax code defines um, what the federal government considers to be legitimate life insurance contracts. So inside of 7702, there are two tests and life insurance contracts must pass one of those two tests in order to be considered uh, life insurance and and benefit from uh, tax advantage of uh, not being taxed on the inside buildup of cash value, so that's the important piece to uh, to that. And what changed was that the interest rate uh, in that part of the code was reduced. It was four uh, percent uh, and six percent, four percent for one of the tests and six percent for the I believe the GPT test. So um, so that. That's a big change, um, and that will that will allow uh, a little more flexibility to the carriers, and and more importantly, allow for products to be available to consumers. Right, because if you put too much cash into the product and you fail the test, then you have a modified endowment contract, and you're treated like an annuity, right? Right. It'll be uh, yep, and and so then. Um, any of the tax that gets pulled out would be taxable. Mm-hmm. I mean, any of the cash value that gets pulled out would be taxable. Right. And so the thought is that by lowering these interest rates, what maybe would change with the product? So, yeah, well, so let's say why that's important. So lowering the interest rate allows uh, the carrier um, to price the product in today's you know, economic environment. So they were pricing products uh, at say the four percent rate, when their port- general account portfolio yield was just barely over that, so that made for a tight, you know, product, especially for whole life with the guaranteed cash value. So, with whole life now, they'll have a little more room 
to balance the benefits between the guaranteed cash value and the non-guaranteed side. Um, and then, you know, potentially uh, come out with uh, products that um, they weren't able to have before and maybe eliminate some of the midterm duration products. So they're going to have to uh, take a look at their portfolio and see, you know, what makes sense given the, the new rates. But they're definitely going to have more flexibility and, and uh, you know, products will remain available, which is, which is what we want. Well, and that's, I mean, basically, uh, you know, 7702 was originally written in 1984 and T-bills were north of like 11% then, right? So 4 and 6% when T-bills are in double digits was one thing. Last year, T-bills hit like 500 basis points. I mean, it was, it was you know, like, it's just not, there's such a divorced reality from the economic and interest rate environment. And this was exacerbated by COVID, right? Like in response to COVID, the Fed came out last year and said, we're not touching interest rates. They're going to remain at historic lows for at least another three years. Um, and so that's really where this came from. And Jeff's absolutely right. This is about product availability in the toolbox for you to use in planning with your different clients uh, going forward. Right. And a good example is um, some of the whole life products. The the ten pay was causing a mech. And, and that's a popular duration. And, you know, to... You know, to most consumers, they don't want a mech. So uh, this will allow, you know, the shorter duration uh, contracts to not mech. And uh, that's what we all want. These changes sound really consumer friendly and very exciting. And like maybe we should all rush out and start doing dramatically different things in our sales process and saying different things to our clients. But I suspect, Jeff, that you have a more sort of moderate approach to that. And, and um, I think I even you had an interesting analogy for you know, how we should be thinking about these changes that may be coming in the future. Yeah, so uh, I was, you know, and, and I'm still trying to think this through, but I was thinking of if we were in the auto industry and let's say, you know, uh, Army owned uh, an auto dealership and right at the end of 2020, the industry figured out how to improve performance. Let's say it's miles per gallon in, in, in the auto. And um, Army says to me, oh, that's great. I think I'll take advantage of that right away. I, I, I've got like 10 clients I could sell. And, and I'd say, well, uh, it's only available on new cars. So the cars you have in your lot, you know, that, it doesn't affect those cars. It's the new cars. And, and you say, okay, well, what's my price on the new cars? And I said, well, we haven't figured that out yet. We, we have to go back and we have to manufacture. And, then, and when, when we do that, we have to figure out, you know, the, the price of the tariffs and steel and tires. And we haven't quite figured that out. And you say, oh, so when's that going to happen? And I'm like, well, you know, it takes a while to build a new car. You know, we have to model it. We have to price it. We have to you know, get it approved. And, and in our case, in the life insurance world, we got to file it with the states and and get it approved. So it may take, you know, a few months, maybe a couple of quarters for a new product to arrive. And oh, and one other thing, Army, um, we don't quite know yet what your commission will be on these new cars. And so you say to yourself, well, let me think about this. I might have to wait half a year for the new car. And you don't know what my commission is. I'm going to sell the cars that are on the lot. Yeah, that's um, a great analogy. I think that I think that's well said. The other part of this is like. 
consumers and producers benefit from the a full and competitive marketplace. So we want lots of carriers providing lots of different product sets to give you the toolbox. Um, and they operate in a competitive environment on all the points that Jeff just uh, illustrated, right? So um, they're all going to come with different different answers uh, to these questions. And ultimately, we think that's good for people's financial security, which is what uh, your profession is all about and inspires our name at Finseca. Mm-hmm. And Army, you did um, a webinar yesterday with Bobby Samuelson, which was excellent. And Bobby made a point that I hadn't really thought about in that con- in this context before, but he reminded us that the carriers don't actually have to make any changes to their current suite of products. They're still compliant with 7702 right now. So they may take a look at the products that they have in their portfolio and decide, mm, this one's okay. So what, what the change to 7702 did was it gave them the option to change the interest rates that they're using and to sort of respond to economic pressures, but it didn't obligate them to. And I think that also is an interesting, important point. Yeah, so it's prospective and it's flexible, right? The, the rate in the code is a floor. Um, and so on different, you know, Bobby was talking about, I'm sure Jeff can talk about, like different products will end up at different places, which is, again, goes back to the toolbox theory that different solutions for different purposes are right for different people and producers and consumers benefit from lots of, of variation there. So it's, it's prospective, it's competitive, there's optionality in it. And um, they're going to, uh, you know, lots of carriers will compete on the whiz bang side to try to find you the, the latest and greatest car, uh, so to speak. Um, so, you know, we're going to have to see how that all, all shakes out and they will come out at different times. So I think it's real important to be measured in our communications to understand why this was done. Um, we don't want, frankly, uh, it's really important that that we don't, uh, that the marketing of producers and consumers and producer groups don't um, go crazy on this because uh, we don't want to buy ourselves additional problems in, in Congress that occasionally uh, aggressive marketing has done in the past. And thank you. you know, and Jeff, speaking of the whiz-bang nature of carriers sometimes, what have you heard from the carriers you've been talking to? What are they saying to you? So they're still in the analysis phase. They're, they're, you know, looking at, you know, what it means to them and they're looking at their product portfolio and they're assessing, you know, their product calendar, which products it would make sense for them to redesign. Um, and then, you know, uh, determine which products would be repriced and then they have to be refiled. So what they're, what I've been hearing is they basically have to open up the hood and, you know, retool, you know, the product. And in doing so, you know, it, so let's go back um, to 7702 with these new rates. Yes, the MEC limits are higher. So you can put in more premium, um, but when they retool a product, it doesn't necessarily mean that the product substantially improves because of all the other parts to the product, right? The mortality charges, oh, and by the way, we're in the midst of a pandemic. Um, expenses, premium loads. Oh, and by the way, it's a tough environment to buy bonds, which life insurance carriers do. So there's there's going to be a lot of factors that go into it. So yes, we can put more premium in, but you know the cash value IRR may not substantially improve because of the rest of the economic environment. 
So that um, that's sort of what I'm hearing. And also, um, remember another analogy, it's like a three-legged stool, right? It has to be good for the consumer. It has to be eventually profitable for the insurance carrier. And, you know, we pay insurance professionals to sell life insurance products. So there's commission involved. And, and so they need to kind of manipulate those three legs of the stool in order to uh, come up with a product. And finally, they're doing it blind because there's not a product out there yet that someone has, you know, filed and released. So they, they're doing that. Um, and so that's why to Army's point, I think it will be slow because products will come out, you know, one at a time and the competitive landscape, you know, the carriers will watch and figure out where they're going to land with their design. And so they'll, um, They'll have to go through that process. So it may take, you know, a year, year and a half before the dust to settle. Mm-hmm. So they're in a race to not be first. Yeah, I've heard that. I, I've heard uh, they're going to be methodical and keep an eye on competitors. Uh, so, so as we're waiting for that and sort of seeing how things develop, are there a couple of things that you think we should be watching for, paying attention to, you know, sort of areas of unknown? Um. So, you know, one of the areas that people have talked about already is is uh, the commission aspect, right? We talked about that part of the three-legged stool. So, um, you know, with this change, if you're selling, you know, a product where you know the premium and you want a minimum non-MAC death benefit, that minimum non-MAC death benefit is going to be lower, which means you're your commission will be lower. Like if you're looking at target premiums, that that automatically equates to a lower target. So now- It it could be, right? Like you're talking about their old system versus the new system that hasn't been designed yet. Correct, correct. So that's to answer Kristen's question. That's what we're gonna be watching for is how they recalibrate the target premium, the commissions with this change. Um, And that'll affect performance. So, um, you know, that's definitely one thing. And also with this economic environment, you know, whether or not some of the products have excess premium loads to counterbalance the fact that the insurance carrier has to turn around and invest this money in a tough economic environment. So I think, I think those are a couple of things that I, I'm going to keep an eye on. Well, and that was one of the other fascinating points in the conversation is because we're an ultra low interest rate environment, some carriers don't want more premium up front because they don't have a good spot to put it, which I thought was fascinating. Right, and that's actually in some of the contracts today. There are some carriers that have um, charges built in to help them with this environment. So um, that's not new, but I'm wondering if it's gonna be more prevalent with the higher MEC limits. It might be, but the the nice thing is that ultimately this will bring more, I would think, diversity or optionality to the marketplace, which is better for everybody, for the consumer and for the industry as a whole. When you have more things to sell and more variety, you get to have choices to really fit what a client needs. Right, right. I think it'll actually make for an interesting year and a half in the product world as you know, products come out and they're they're not cookie cutter. I think you're going to see different products from different carriers. 
uh, or different designs, I should say, on the products from the carriers. And, and that'll make it interesting. And, and based on the client's goal, um, you know, one product could be better suited than another. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely, definitely looking uh, to follow that. Well, thank you, Jeff. And I wanted to let our audience know that Jeff and Army and I partnered up to do a piece that is a co-branded Finseca NFP sort of analysis of 7702, the changes, what it might mean, and what we're watching for. So that will be coming up shortly. Um, and it's a pleasure to partner with Finseca on these things and really you know, keep abreast of the industry. So Jeff, thank you for your expertise and insight. Um, Army, we initially planned to talk about some other changes that have happened. Um, we're 14 days right now into January, and to say it's been off to a sleepy start would be <laughs> really untrue. We have had a lot that's happened, um, and I really was hoping we could transition to talking about the Georgia runoff election when we spoke last before the end of the year. For the end of 2020, we talked about what a Georgia runoff election might mean. So if you wouldn't mind, um, remind us of the Georgia results and sort of give us some context for that, Army. Sure. So um, January 5th, uh, which seems like a lifetime ago, uh, Georgia voters went to the polls who voted in person or on election day. They'd obviously been voting by mail for a while uh, to decide the overtime of the 2020 election. Um, Senator uh, Kelly Loeffler, uh, who was appointed to her position, was running against um, a gentleman by the name of Raphael Warnock, who was the pastor of uh, Martin Luther King's church in Georgia. Um, And Senator David Perdue, uh, the full-term incumbent, uh, originally elected in 2016, uh, or 2014, excuse me, uh, was running against a a young man by the name of John Ossoff. Um, and as everybody now knows, uh, Georgia voters uh, elected both um, Mr. Warnock and Mr. Ossoff. So we have uh, two additional Democrats into the Congress, giving us a 50-50 split in the Senate, which we've not had since 2001. Um, and by virtue of uh, President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect uh, Kamala Harris, who will become uh, president and vice president next week after the peaceful transition of power, um, uh, Kamala Harris will cast the tie-breaking vote in the Senate, giving Democrats a technical majority and a um, and full control of the lawmaking elements of Washington D.C. Uh, for the first time since 2009. Now, many of you who tuned into Fonseca or Fonseca NFP. Kristen and Army shows in the past, we'll know that on the front side of November's election, we were talking a lot about the potential of a uh, blue wave. Um, And I think what we've ended up getting is a bit more of a blue ripple. Um, (laughs) A technical majority requires Kamala Harris, who was the uh, junior senator from uh, California, or still is the junior senator of California until she takes the vice presidency. uh, it, it, it could require her to be in the Senate a lot, <laughs> uh, perhaps as much as she as she was as a senator. Um, but there are realities to the vice president's duties and what President Biden uh, will want and expect from Vice President Harris. So in the short term, what this means is Joe Biden will be able to get uh, largely the cabinet he wants, 
rather than dealing with a Republican majority and perhaps moderating some of his choices. Um, so I expect, we expect uh, uh, Vice President Harris to, to cast tie-breaking votes, much as Vice President Pence did um, in the Republican Senate in 2017 to give Donald Trump the cabinet he wanted. So that's the first big impact. Um, but uh, she's clearly not going to decamp to the Senate every single day and report for work there. Uh, and so, you know, there's going to have to be some bipartisanism, bipartisanship uh, in order to get big things done. And, and that that we think is a good thing, right? We get more durable policy. We get uh, more moderated and sensible policy oftentimes uh, out of our Congress when it is done in bipartisan ways. Um, so it's going to be really interesting. We've talked more about it. People know, you know, I take the Nancy Pelosi, Mitch McConnell view, uh, which is that uh, the law is ultimately made by the vote count. Um, and so they always want to know where are the members and that's what will dictate. So you have the smallest majority, Democratic majority in the House of Representatives since the 1930s. Um, so Nancy Pelosi is speaker again, but she's operating on a very, very tight margin. And Chuck Schumer from New York will be a majority leader but by the barest of technical majorities, and he will have to keep everybody in the same spot, including moderates and progressives, in order to enact a Biden agenda. So that seems really, because as you pointed out, President, Vice President-elect Harris will have other duties, that there will be some really sort of moderates on both sides of you know, both parties in the Senate that are going to really be the decision makers, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Um, and so, I mean, I think you'll see whether it's Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema, Gary Peters, uh, Michael Bennett, uh, Senator Cortez Masto, Senator Hassan, uh, John Tester, like there's a whole bunch of names. You know, a lot of the focus and attention is on the firebrands of both parties. Um, the moderate yeoman uh, legislators who are trying to enact good policy towards the center um, are really where a lot of the work has gotten done in the past and, and certainly will in the next two years. Um, we are going to see, you know, we we're talking before in our little prep before getting on, um, there was lots of talk about the filibuster and the reconciliation rules to sort of arcane procedural things, but that all focus on uh, whether you enact with, or whether you pass things in the Senate with a 60 vote margin or a 51 vote margin. And clearly in this case, um, they will be, unless it's like broad by bar bipartisan, um, they will be looking at 51 vote margin uh, type things. And that has implications for what they can get done and how they will do it. So if, if you could remind us of the reconciliation process, how it works and how many times they get to utilize that lever of power. Uh, as an arcane procedural rule, it, uh, it doesn't necessarily have a simple answer, but let me break it down for you this way. Um, <laughs> The reconciliation process is derivative of the budget process in Congress. So the first step is they have to pass a budget, both the House and the Senate, that has to be identical and provide what are called reconciliation instructions to committees. And it means that that legislation all has to have a fiscal tie, tax or spending. Um, and so there are things that you can't include in such packages. Um, uh, folks, listeners may remember that uh, this reconciliation process is the process by which um, Democrats in Congress uh, got through the second part of the Affordable Care Act back in 2009 and 2010. Um, and it is also the process that Republicans used in 2017 um, to drive their tax reform. 
Um, and so we think that will be part of it again. So they will have to pass a budget and then that gives them instructions. And within the instructions, they can write a bill that has procedural protections for a 51 vote margin in the Senate. Um, interesting tidbit, Bernie Sanders will chair the budget committee. Um, and so, you know, clearly he's um, a, a famous progressive and, and has already made statements. You'll be reading big headlines about what Bernie Sanders wants to do. But to Kristen's very uh, astute point, um, for them to get all of this done, not only will you need Kamala Harris, but you will need Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema, Maggie Hassan, John Tester, all these other moderates to vote for it as well. And so we're going to see some balance uh, work its way through. But clearly, uh, COVID is the first driver. And the package at the end of the year um, included extensions of unemployment insurance and some other things that expire at the middle of March. So that's sort of going to be their goal, probably, to get the first thing done. And um, I think they're probably going to have to do it under reconciliation because I'm not sure they'll get to 60 votes. So that was the next question. If you only have 51 votes and you only need 51 for reconciliation, but it has to be spending related, how do you anticipate the Biden administration's priorities shifting given that it was a blue ripple instead of a blue wave? I don't know that the Biden administration is yet moderating or negotiating with themselves. So again, you're going to see uh, lots of conversation across the next, I would say, two to six weeks that try to push the envelope as far as they would want it to be. Uh, Senator Ron Wyden from Oregon, who will chair the Senate Finance Tax Writing Committee, uh, gave an interview yesterday in which he is uh, saying he's going to push his mark-to-market proposal, uh, which we can talk about, and we've talked about in the past, we've talked about again. Um, I'm reasonably certain there are not going to be 50 votes for his mark-to-market proposal. And um, one of the other adages of Washington, of which I am a fan, is that additive compromise is easy, whereas subtractive compromise is really hard. So said another way, if uh, Jeff and Chris and I are together and I bring five donuts, um, we are gonna get an uneven number of donuts, but we all have more donuts than we had before I arrived. That compromise is pretty easy. Like. I don't need that many donuts, so maybe I take one less and Kristen and Jeff get theirs, but everybody got more. If we come to the table and we can't leave the podcast till somebody leaves a finger in the bucket, like or something that you care about a lot, that's a lot harder, right? And that, to me, is the human element of how lawmaking is done and why fiscal conservatism by uh, conservative Democrats and conservative Republicans is so much harder. It's a lot harder to give up or to take away than it is uh, to add. And so, you know, the people I'm talking to, you know, there's this big question of when will the tax increases come, corporate rate, 199 cap A, other things. And there'll be a lot of discussion about that. Um, But it seems the fastest path in the timeline, I mean, middle of March, March 14th, I think is the expiration date. That's like six weeks from inauguration day or seven weeks from inauguration day. That's no time, particularly when you go back to, you got to have a budget and then you got to have this other stuff. And so I think it's likely that the first one is COVID, uh, perhaps some uh, Affordable Care Act uh, strengthening, uh, uh, perhaps some things around the earned income tax credit and the um, child tax credit, and uh, uh, perhaps something around the SALT deduction, although that's got its own issues. But the way that list is coming together by some keen observers and some of Fonseca's counsel is those are, that, that menu is the things on which there is 
practical unanimity among Democrats, uh, as opposed to the things that will have to build support, be understood. I mean, the mark-to-market proposal of Ron Wyden is a fundamental change to our tax code by anyone's estimation. So the notion you're going to do that in six to eight weeks is is probably a little far-fetched. And with that six to eight week timeline, if Senate, if the Senate is distracted by an impeachment trial, how likely is that to really sort of delay that six to eight week timeline or have a sort of dramatic impact on the administration's agenda? Well, so, I mean, it, it certainly can be a distraction and consume a lot of oxygen. Um, when the Senate went through this last year, it was able to get very little else done. Um, you know, the last time there was a 50-50 Senate, there was a lot more comedy uh, between the parties and, and amongst the country, frankly. Uh, that's not the, the world we're living in today. So, you know, we're going to find out what Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell are negotiating about the general operations of the Senate. Also, the Senate trial doesn't begin until um, Nancy Pelosi transmits the impeachment. So there's this discussion going on in the House of Representatives uh, you know, Jim Clyburn, the third ranking um, uh, House Democrat in leadership, has talked about waiting 100 or 120 days to transmit it to allow Joe Biden to get his cabinet appointed and to, um, you know, enact 100 days agenda. So th- I think there's more known, uh, 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 more known unknowns about that at this point. Um, but certainly it will it, it will consume whenever it comes, it will consume a a significant chunk of the conversation. Yeah, going back to a, another question you asked that I didn't answer, I'm sorry. How many times can they use reconciliation? So you can only use it so many times as you have budgets, and budgets are fiscal year annual fiscal year pieces. Um, but uh, in 2017, uh, Republicans sort of established a precedent that they used last year's and this year's. And so they got two bites there. You may recall they first used it to try to repeal and replace Obamacare, concluding in August with John McCain's famous thun- thumbs down on the Senate floor. Um, and that's how they used the first one. And then they used the second one for tax reform. Um, so it's possible that that uh, congressional Democrats could have two bites of that apple. And so I've described what I th- what many people think phase one may be. Phase two is likely to be focused, I think, around infrastructure, climate change. Um, and, you know, in there, you could see significant revisions to the tax code, uh, depending on what direction they decide to take. So I think the last thing that maybe we should try to leave people with is, you know, similar to the question that we I asked Jeff about, you know, when should I buy the new more fuel efficient car? You know, what sort of things should we be telling our clients and what should consumers be focusing on is, you know, we we start this new year and a new administration. And I think we all agree that it's not likely to be any less busy and sort of sweeping change and constantly things evolving. So how do we still help people stay focused and do the planning that they need to do for their own financial security? I think uh, it's always a good time for reliable planning, but I'm a bit biased, as as our audience knows. I'm a passionate advocate for what you do. Uh, I think it's really important. And so, um, I, I mean, the, to to the earlier point, I don't think the Democrats uh, or the Biden administration has curtailed their ambition. Uh, they still, you know, you look at the Biden tax plan, and it's 
uh, significantly increasing taxes on everybody who has an adjusted gross income over $400,000, higher marginal rates, taxing capital gains of death, death as a realization event, uh, adjustments to um, the estate tax regime, uh, and, and a series of other things. I mean, there's lots of complexity that Chris and I have reviewed in the past. We will certainly do so again. I don't know if I don't know how much of that they can enact in 2021 and 2022, but if they see the opportunity to do so, they're going to take it. And given the Senate map, I hate to already be jumping into the 2022 elections with everybody who's probably just tired of politics, uh, and understandably so. But um, the Senate map suggests that Democrats could grow their technical majority from the ripple into the wave. Um, I mean, that's not certain. The campaigns, candidates, and uh, voters matter to that answer a lot. Um, but there are a, a lot more Republicans up in 2022 than Democrats, and they're up in places uh, that provide switching opportunities that could grow the Senate majority to a place where the moderates may not dominate as much. Um, and some of this real uh, more aggressive reform could take place. And that's why, you know, Fonseca has always taken the position that um, bipartisanship is better for long-term durable policy um, and that unified control, whether by Republicans or Democrats, because it expands the appetite and ambition for change, can contain real risks for the long-term planning environment. Mm -hmm. And I think... It's important to remind people that you know we provide financial security and sell life insurance, and life insurance is the best way to provide certainty in uncertain times. And you know that's true during some life and at death. And so I think we need to be focused on what we do best and stay the course and help people find some certainty and some predictability in a really uncertain time. Well, and there's a great, there's a, a thousand, a million great stories to tell to exactly to your point. Like, have we, I mean, I, I feel like uh, Confucius, like may you live in interesting times, which was not intended as a compliment since like 2008. Um, it seems we haven't had a simple, um, mm -hmm. stable uh, reality since then. But the last year has been phenomenally disruptive and uncertain. And those who did the planning, your clients in advance were, much better prepared to weather those storms and probably had a much better year. And I know I talk to producers and advisors every day who are talking to clients who are wishing, having realized and experienced the benefit of the products, uh, wishing they'd done more of it in the past. And I think that's a tremendous opportunity, right? Because the, the nature of this is you have to plan for the long term and you have to do it well ahead of when you need it for it to be most impactful. So that's the other piece to the equation, I would say. Yeah, and I think that's probably the perfect place to leave this. So, thank you so much for having me. It was great to be with you today. It was great to be with you. And Jeff, thank you for jumping onto the pod with us and sharing your expertise and helping us make sense of the extraordinarily dense section that is 7702. Yeah, thank you. Thank you both. Appreciate it being here. Everybody for listening today. Have a great day.